You are listening to the Lab Lowdown. So hey everyone, uh, back with the Lab Lowdown. This is Fergus. Hey everyone, it's Ashley. And we are joined today by a very special guest, Dr. John Gilmore. Hi. Well, that's nice of you. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, YouTube celebrity physician yeah. here in uh, the Houston area. Probably has incredible stories to share, so we can't wait to dig deep into it and now, see let's what be careful. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, some fun, yeah. So, what we want to talk about today is uh, a little bit about UDT for uh, mm-hmm. for clinics, especially from a family practice angle. I think a lot of the time, pain management doctors sort of understand the need for UDT a little bit more, but. Uh, as it happens, UDT is actually really important in the family sphere, the primary care sphere, um, all over healthcare. So um, just to start off, why don't you tell us a little bit about you uh, and your uh, clinic? Sure. I'm a family medicine clinic. I've been a uh, family medicine physician. I've been practicing uh, in the Houston area now um, 13 or so years. I've been practicing in total for 20 years. Congrats. Uh, thanks. Yeah. And um, we have a full-service family medicine clinic in Cyprus, uh, 1916 Fallbrook, and there are five of us in the clinic. Um, I'm one of two physicians. We have three nurse practitioners. And we all use, uh, yeah, I prefer the, the term toxicology screening and I, and for a lot of reasons. I think that uh, when you say urine drug test, it's kind of got a pejorative uh, mm-hmm. kind of uh, meaning to it. And I think that um, a lot of physicians feel that way about it, too. And I, I think it's kind of a turnoff. Mm-hmm. And so let's just jump right into that. I think that's an important distinction, too, because when I'm talking to other physicians about doing toxicology screening, I want them to really understand that this is not uh, an accusatory forum. It, it's it's an opportunity for us to, to not only be sure the patient is uh, not using illicit medication or illicit yeah. drugs, and they absolutely want to make sure of that, but also uh, as, a, as a compliance tool. And a lot of times it's really important for physicians to understand what their, uh, what their patients are, are taking and that they're taking their medications therapeutically as well. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, I think, a big area that, that physicians miss. But yeah, we all do toxicology screening in my clinic um, and have for a number of years. And, um, and we think it's a very important part of our practice. Mm-hmm. And do you also test like every new patient that comes into kind of as a baseline? I think that um, I think we leave that up individually to each physician. I think there are some circumstances where we would feel a little bit uncomfortable with that. Um, we do, as a rule, toxicology screen our new patients. But I think if you have an 85-year-old patient um, that, that maybe can't produce a urine mm-hmm. test, I think that um, in those situations we try to document uh, okay. why we haven't. Okay, mm-hmm. So, yeah, we do think it's important. We think it's very important, especially in uh, the environment that we're in today with patients and uh, with uh, the um, the use of elicits um, on the rise and the um, unfortunate the, the ease with which uh, people are uh, able to get you know uh, these kind of products that it's important that that we start out on a um, level playing ground where mm-hmm. we know where we are with the patient from the get go and that they also understand that that we're a clinic that. Um, is going to be looking for accountability down the road as well. So, of course. Whoops, I'm terribly okay. sorry. Oh, don't worry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, just digging a little bit more into the protocol, like, what what would your protocol be personally? You say you leave it up mm-hmm. to the physician. So, when sure. do you feel it's appropriate to? Uh, we actually have a clinic protocol, and if you're gonna if you're gonna deviate from the protocol, generally we ask that you have a reasonable. Uh, reason for doing so. Um, first of all, all new patients are screened, like you talked about. Actually, mm-hmm. I think that's important. We toxicology screen all our new patients uh, to get a baseline reading for what they're doing. Um, and then, secondarily, um, patients who are on any kind of controlled medication that requires a triplicate. Okay, mm-hmm. so this would be 
um, uh, for any kind of stimulant uh, for ADAD, ADHD medications uh, for those patients. Um, if we were still treating uh, chronic pain patients, um, which we no longer do, but we but we do occasionally do prescribe uh, narcotic pain medications for acute pain settings. Uh, for example, somebody comes in with a severe sprain. For mm-hmm. uh, so those patients, if they're if they are regular users of those kind of medicines, then we do every three months we want to get a toxicology screen on them. Uh, thirdly, our patients that are on benzodiazepines or other controlled medications such as sleeping aids, and that's a big area, uh, the anxiolytics such as the benzo- benzos for that reason, um, sleeping pills, people don't think about this, medications like um, um, uh, Ambien is what's called mm-hmm. Zolpidem is what I was trying to mm-hmm. think of it. Zolpidem uh, and other medicines in that category, the uh, the newer generation sleeping aids. We want to tox screen them somewhere between three to six months, um, and that's at the discretion of the provider, depending on the reliability and so forth of the patient. If we have a patient who's been with us a number of years and their tox screens continue to come up the way we expect mm-hmm. them to, we may tox them every six every six months okay. if they're on a benzo, for example. And then again. Um, those patients, uh, and finally those patients who are on antidepressants, uh, we want to tox them every six months mm-hmm. um, or even sooner in some cases, depending if we have a suspicion or a concern that they may not have, uh, not, may not be taking their medications. I think it shocks a lot of people to find out that um, such a low percent, I think it's less than, is it less than 30%? I believe the number's right. At six months uh, of patients who are prescribed an antidepressant are still taking it for six months. I believe that's right. Am I right? Oh, yeah, I've, I've heard similar. Right. Yeah. Uh, so some of these statistics, that they kind of rattle around and we think about these and we talk about these things when we make clinic policy. But the fact of the matter is uh, the vast majority, and it's somewhere around um, 50% of patients aren't taking the medications that physicians believe they are, yeah. and 50% mm-hmm. are. The question is, is which group is which? And the truth of the matter is, is that physicians simply don't know. We, we really don't know. We think we know, mm-hmm. but we don't know. And we underestimate um, the lengths that, that a uh, patient or an abuser, let's call that person mm-hmm. an abuser, will go through to obtain a, um, a prescription for a controlled medication for whatever their purposes are, whether it's mm-hmm. for resale or for for personal use and abuse or for just sharing with their friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think we've, we've done studies in the lab internally, and I think it was about 67% of, yeah, um, a very high percentage. of reports came back with abnormal results. Mm-hmm. So either things were being prescribed that weren't detected or things were being detected that weren't prescribed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know for statin, especially it's particularly bad um i'm not sure the exact numbers for antidepressants with statins i think it's saying like 40 percent of patients are compliant mm-hmm. with their, their medication routines mm-hmm. so uh have you ever looked into like compliance testing for statins for i think so. statins a little bit different we have a different way of checking for compliance with statins and that mm-hmm. is is the laboratory work we normally do to check for their lipid levels and to look at their liver function test to be sure that their bodies uh, you know on a kinetic standpoint that their bodies are actually handling the medication okay mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're, we're looking at that in a different manner, but we are checking on our patients that are on statins um, basically for um, effectiveness, so efficacy standpoint. So we don't necessarily need a specific separate toxicology screen for that unless we're getting at labs back that we don't expect to be getting mm-hmm. back on a patient that is supposedly taking that medication. So non-compliance is just rampant. We all know yeah, that. So yeah. if I had a patient that was insisting 
uh, that they were taking the medication and yet I wasn't getting the results that I suspected, then that's a person who would be an excellent candidate for a toxicology screen to, to look for uh, that stat. Yeah. Yeah, and I know the communication is very clear between the provider and the patient, but do you think the patient is ever like really not wanting to take a certain test or they start questioning so much to where they get upset? Does that happen a lot in your clinic? No, I don't run into a situation where patients feel like they're being tested too often and get upset about that. If that's if that's what you're asking, um, I think that there's a there's a different way I could interpret your question. I want to address it that way too. But I think that um, patients realize that in the environment that we're in today, with misuse and abuse and misdirection uh, of uh, important medications that they expect now that uh, toxicology screening is going to be a part of what they're doing. Yeah. The other, the flip side of it, uh, the way that I could have interpreted your mm -hmm. question is, is um, those patients that know they've been prescribed a medication, but they are afraid of the medicine, or if there is mm -hmm. a fear factor of other reasons, they've read something on the internet, or they knew somebody that took that medication and they got sick, or they had, a, and they're not on the medicine, but they don't want to be honest about mm -hmm. it. And, it. And it's not that they're dishonest people; mm -hmm. it's that they're actually afraid of offending the physician. Yeah. Um, and in my clinic, we try to develop a really good relationship with every patient, and I think most physicians do. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that a lot of times they're just embarrassed uh, they don't they it don't be a hard conversation yeah. to have like you know doc i just didn't take it i was afraid of it and i said well you know a lot of times what i'll ask him is well why didn't you call me well mm -hmm. i didn't want you to be upset with me and, yeah and that's and and you know sometimes it's it's like dealing with a family member it mm -hmm. really is and, and uh, if you have a patient uh, that you've had long enough and you indeed are treating the entire family they are like family members exactly so, um, and sometimes they just don't feel comfortable coming clean with the fact that they're just not taking the medication because they're afraid of it, um, or even if they've had a, a side effect with the medicine, which is an absolute reasonable uh, reason not yeah. to take the medication. Yeah. They, they just don't want to call. So um, it gives us that extra tool. Having a, a tox screen uh, gives us the extra tool if we need it. But a lot of times if they know that we're tox screening, they'll, mm -hmm. they'll go ahead and they'll just tell us. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the real power of the tool is, mm. is it just creates um, uh, honesty. Um, open conversation. Open conversation, mm -hmm. sure. And if you, you guys are kind of both young, but there was a time uh, years ago where for our diabetics, we had to actually believe our diabetics as to how well they told us their diabetes was controlled. <laughs> yeah. We used to give them little booklets and they would have a glucometer and they would go home and they would uh, do finger sticks. And they would oh, really? Like down. a self-measurement? Right, okay. right. And so we did not have a tool that we use today called the hemoglobin A1C or glycosylated mm -hmm. hemoglobin, right? We didn't have that tool, which yeah. actually gives me a 90-day <laughs> average. So my diabetic patient would come in and tell me, oh, I'm doing fantastic, doctor. Mm -hmm. Everything's great. No problem. Medicines are working. Bingo, bango, let's wow. go. But the truth of the matter is they had terrible control and they were having target organ damage in the retina and the kidneys and they were developing mm -hmm. the neuropathy and these other problems were happening and we couldn't explain it. Well, then we got the tool. Then we got the hemoglobin A1C, yeah. which gave us a 90-day average. So when a patient comes in now and I've got an A1C of 9, which probably equilibrates somewhere or equates to a a, a average reading of running over 200 for the mm -hmm. last 90 days, right? And they tell me, oh, I just missed my dose yesterday. It's been great yeah. every day. I can say, well, wait a minute. We really need to talk because this is a 90-day average. And then they're, they're, you know, you get the eyes light up. Like, well, what do you mean? I mean yeah. This is an average of 90 <laughs> days. Yeah. What you did one day is really a very small part of this number. Mm -hmm. You're not under good control at all. Yeah. And so then we can have a real serious discussion. So having that kind of information helps 
helps me be a better physician to the patient, mm-hmm. helps the patient get a better outcome, and then so you apply that to toxicology. Mm-hmm. Now I've got the same kind of tool mm-hmm. for my patients that are on their antidepressants who are on these other medications that yeah. we're talking about, and I have a tool that I can use that can that can help me be a better physician to them because we actually have a, we've got the truth detector mm-hmm. right we know we know what's going on mm-hmm. um, and when you when you have that kind of relationship with your patient then your patient is more likely just to come on out and just mm-hmm. be honest and say hey doc look I I just didn't take it you know yeah. I, I was out of the country or or I got I got lazy and I fell off the wagon I just yeah. haven't been taking care of myself I really want to make another start at this and, and then we you know we've got common ground we've got a place we can start with where mm-hmm. I can actually work psych- on a psychological basis and help the patient kind of really kind of take responsibility for their health again yeah, yeah. so was there like a moment uh were you always uh pro toxicology screening or was there a moment where you sort of realized that there was a need for it you know, it's an interesting question. Um, it was not a part of my training. Okay, um, toxicology screening in its current form and sophistication hasn't been around that long. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I'm not sure quite how long it's been. You might know better than me, but uh, as far as my practice is concerned, it's only been in the last five years where I was really introduced to toxicology screening as what should be part of our practice. Um, and then more so over the last three years after we implemented and really began to uh, get into toxicology screening as a tool uh, for better better outcomes in patient care. Oh, and how was that reaction with your patients when they knew that, oh, this was being introduced to you? Because I know you have patients who've gone, gone to you for a couple of years. So when they saw that this new um, process was happening, what was their reaction to it? Yeah, we had some patients uh, walk out. To be honest with you, we mm-hmm. we um, we had we had more than one patient who felt like this was a, a violation of their privacy, and I understand where they were coming from. But we also determined that these were probably patients that were diverting the medications yeah. Uh, yeah. or doing things that we didn't want to be scared to know. Right. We 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 um, we really didn't have that many, but we did have some that that just said, "I don't want to be a part of this," and just mm-hmm. walked out. But beyond that. Um, our patients have accepted it as as a part of what we do and as part of you know, what you know what medical practice is today. Mm-hmm. And I think they've accepted it. Uh, rarely do I have a patient now after just a few years of doing toxicology screening very regularly. Rarely, rarely do we have a patient that complains about it. Mm-hmm. They, they, That's they, great. They yeah. know it's going to happen. And they understand that it's a part of what we do. Mm-hmm. Without giving away too much, uh, you know, detail and information, but. Uh, What's the most shocked you've ever been by a, a toxicology result coming back? Um, patients on uh, patients that you would never expect to be using mm-hmm. illicits that were using yeah. illicits, um, elderly ladies. Yeah. Uh, maybe that shows you know my bias a little bit there, but mm-hmm. using cocaine. Um, wow really shocking um and then denying of course and then you bring it up and and of course when you're in a situation like that you want to make sure that you you have a really reliable toxicology service exactly you can count on it and i think we do but um you know and then confronting them and saying look i don't want to you know i don't want to have an accusatory uh uh, situation here Mm -hmm. but your your screen came back positive for cocaine can Mm -hmm. can you explain that and um, actually had a couple of them that denied it at first, but then, oh, well, 
well, oh yeah, you know what I did, and yeah. it's not something I do regularly. And and once, but these have never been patients that have come back twice for this. Yeah. <laughs> they they get it. Um, mm-hmm. So I would say that yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and, and I see a little old lady. I believe the one I'm thinking was 59 or 60, and that's not right. terribly old today. But it was just really a shocking kind of thing because you might expect if you're going to see that kind of a result, uh, it might be, uh, say, a 20-something or somebody yeah. a little bit more uh, at the age where they're still doing risky things and, and living more bulletproof lives, so to speak, like you two young yeah. folks are. <laughs> I didn't do cocaine. Touching <laughs> both of you later. Uh, but, no, uh, and, and, yeah, so you learn and you also um, learn a lot about compliance and, and it's kind of a humbling thing for a physician to realize the number of patients that you prescribe medications for that simply uh, are not going to follow the instructions. They're going to look you right in the eyes and they're going to tell you, yes, I got it. I'm going to do this. Fantastic. We're good. And then they come back next time and they've made no progress and they're denying, um, you know, they're denying their non-compliance when in fact you really strongly feel that they are and then you test them and sure enough, they are. They're non-compliant. So, um, you feel like you're losing your mind after a while because you're not getting the results you expect to get from the medications and uh, the patient's back and they're not taking the medicine, which is sort of this strange psychological right. barrier yeah. that the patient has that they're going to get well without taking the medicine. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, it really brings a little sanity back into my practice because yeah. it gives me the answer to that question oftentimes when you don't have it. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that because the study that Fergus mentioned earlier about us um, having a lot of abnormal results after testing about 12,000 samples, uh, we noticed one of the conclusions was truth bias that providers often suffer with, where you have patients and you just never guess. Um, either it be the age or just the regular routine of them coming in, and then you finally get them tested and you're shocked when the results come in. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so when those results are shocking, do you sometimes question the results of the laboratory? And that's when you call maybe a laboratory director or whoever. I think that in some cases uh, you take a step back and you say, this can't be right. Um, uh, Depending on your experience with whatever laboratory you're using, and of course with the lead, uh, the labs, they're they're right. I mean, I know this this lab service is fantastic. So um, I know that if it says something is positive, it's positive. It's negative. It's the only time that I'll question a result is if there's a possibility that there is something natural out there that could gotcha. give us a cross kind of reaction. Mm-hmm. And and if I really am, uh, if I have a patient, for example, who's doing really well, but the but the uh, toxicology is telling me something different, that might be one I would question, okay. especially from the standpoint that there might be something else uh, that they're doing that could give me a false reading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's um, reasonable. Uh, but if the patient's behavior or and or response to treatment matches what mm-hmm. the results in the toxicology, then I'm, I'm fine. I'm not going to spend a yeah. lot of time, even though I know I've got a PhD scientist over here mm-hmm. that I could pick up the phone and call, mm-hmm. um, rarely do I feel the need to have to do okay. that. Um, so moving away now from uh, from toxicology, what other lab services do you utilize that you like in the in your clinic? Well, we we use um, we, we do a lot of wellness panels. Um, we do pretty much uh, the same standard kind of labs that you might see in any primary care physician, from rheumatoid panels to uh, male wellness panels to female well panels to hormone panels. Um, and then, of course, the individual labs and things like that for your patients on medications. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of medication monitoring. 
Um, so we, we use, um, you know, a lot of times insurance companies uh, require some of that stuff to go through uh, different labs, although I'm not entirely certain that's always the case. But typically, um, we like to, um, you know, run panels uh, at certain times of year for certain patients, especially in the wellness standpoint. So if that's what you're looking for, that's, uh, I would say we're pretty standard from that standpoint. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then moving away from labs entirely, into your uh, your side project, your YouTube channel, mm-hmm. incredibly popular. I checked just before the show. I think you have like four hundred ninety thousand subscribers. I mean, we expect you have five hundred thousand. Yeah, half a million Soon, by the end yeah. of the year. That's, that's been a big party. That's incredible. <laughs> Actually, we're not sure what we're going to do yet. We're, we're pretty excited about it. We, we've been had we've had our ups and downs with YouTube. We, you know, we went through uh, what do they call it, Admageddon. Oh, the oh, monetization goodness, yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. We that. went through that, and then uh, uh, and, and and following that, we went through a period where uh, we just we couldn't get an ad approved uh, for fair monetization, which just means that they wouldn't allow any uh, advertising on our uh, on our videos because uh-huh. they were deemed to be too graphic. And they're right. Uh, I'm not, <laughs> not going to dispute that. But our, our, our videos are graphic. Uh, and so uh, we actually moved off of YouTube for a while to another uh, platform called vid.me, and we used uh, them for a while. Uh, and then, unfortunately, they went out of business. Oh, yeah. And so I threw my arms up and said, okay. Um, and due to some other circumstances, I went through a, a significant uh, neck surgery uh, procedure mm-hmm. four months ago. And uh, before that, I was having a lot of difficulty uh, spending time editing. So fortunately for me, a fantastic editing team uh, in another state that now handles all my editing. And I just went wow. to them and said, look, this is what we've got. You know, we still have, you know, we still have a great channel uh, that we can rebuild, um, but we're going to have to do things differently. We're not going to be able to count on the advertising revenue to cover our expenses. Um, and so at that point, I'd already uh, developed uh, a, uh, a unique supplement uh, mm-hmm. called Meta 7 which is uh, an energizing supplement. It operates at the cellular level to uh, activate uh, how the body handles uh, energy and glucose at the cellular level uh, for, by uh, the, the seven most important ingredients uh, in supplements that, that affect that process. And so we developed it, and um, it's been a big hit for us, and so we simply wow. just advertise our own products. So now we're able to get a, a bit of reimbursement. It's not like it used to be, but mm-hmm. it helps pay the bills and keeps it okay. interesting for us and uh, the, the people that do the editing and the uploading and, and all of that. And um, So we we continued with it, and we've grown um, by 200,000, I think, just in the last year or so. Yeah, it's really grown. Uh, so it's been it, it's a lot of fun because it's changed the character a little bit of my practice because mm-hmm. it gives me another facet uh, to keep me entertained. Yeah. Yeah. You realize after after twenty years, there's, there's very little that happens that's <laughs> yeah. that's, that's new from mm-hmm. the you know from the medical standpoint. Um, you know, patients are always fascinating. People are mm-hmm. always interesting because every person's different. But um, actually, having something that I can video, something that I can turn into mm-hmm. a production yeah. uh, that we can edit and that we can, um, you know, we can make into uh, something that's interesting and maybe educational too, um, is it just creates this whole new area for us. And um, initially, what we'd hoped to do was we wanted uh, people to understand that they could have procedures done at their doctor's office uh, without, you know, having to be referred every time. That there were a lot of in-office procedures that could be done relatively painlessly and quickly, mm-hmm. and not to mention safely. And we do that. 
Um, and so, you know, there seems to be a move out there for primary care physicians to refer everything out. You go to your primary care doctor, and you got mm-hmm. this problem, you got that problem, and you end up with three referrals, and mm-hmm. you know, thanks for stopping by. And yeah. we try not to do that. We try to take care of as much of the patient's uh, needs as possible. And if that's an ingrown toenail, or if that's a cyst, or um, you know, if it's um, corneal abrasion, I mean, we try to take care mm-hmm. of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also know that we don't know everything about anything. Uh, we know a lot about everything in primary care. It's sort of a very, very challenging profession from that standpoint that you just don't know what's going to come in the door. Mm-hmm. So um, when we do find something that we can video and we can get it out there and, and it teaches people something or it shows them that there's another way, um, you know, we think that we've done some good, and we think that we're actually influencing medicine around the world. Yeah, that's really yeah, that's really interesting. So, mm-hmm. is that you sort of got into YouTube because of the educational aspect of it? You wanted to show people that there was uh, there were other things that you could get at primary care um, beyond just sort of basic right. basic health checkups. Sure. But uh, and then you found out that there was sort of a a market for the entertainment side of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and we found that um, that people, there, there are a group of people out there that really enjoy watching uh, these procedures. Yeah. They, find yes. it, they find it almost therapeutic. Um, there are others that go a little bit deeper. They want to know more about the patient, uh, what preceded the symptoms, what mm-hmm. could have caused yeah. the symptoms, how do you prevent this from happening again, mm-hmm. was this the best treatment, those yeah. kind of things. So we have uh, people that are interested on different levels. And mm-hmm. So if I put up a video, like we put up a video yesterday um, about this time, uh, I think it's the most recent video, in fact, if you were to check. Mm-hmm. And in less than 24 hours, it's already gone over 100,000 views. Wow! But it was—it's a—it's it, a video of me extracting a cyst, mm-hmm. and um, those videos are always going to do great because there's a lot of you know uh, drive-by viewers. Let's call yeah. it that, right? And they just want to see that. They don't want to get into it, and they won't mm-hmm. even watch the whole video. They might watch just a, a portion of it, and they'll leave a comment, something. Now, oftentimes, they'll ask a, a question that was covered in the video, and it's obvious <laughs> they didn't watch the video. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, so you know, we try to we try to treat them uh, polite and um, answer their questions. Yeah. But the the there's a core group out there that um, that I share with a number of other physicians that that just they're they're so into um, this realm that um, they they follow all of us uh, yeah. and the, it's the same group and it's a wonderful group of people. They're really very fascinating yeah. um, in their interest in this and these are these are people that are almost. Um, in some cases, more educated than the physicians they're watching yeah. because they've seen a lot of research going they're, on. They're doing a lot I've seen of, so many cases. Yeah, yeah. a lot of YouTube doctors out there. I'm sure. Yeah. Let me tell you what: when one of them steps up and starts talking, you need to listen because they, they know what they're talking about. It's yeah. amazing the level of knowledge. So I want to uh, throw my hat off uh, to these to these folks because they uh, they do know what they're talking about. They'll say uh, they'll get they'll get me. I mean, if yeah. I if I don't do something, if I leave out a step or yeah. something that that I may think is relatively irrelevant. Mm-hmm. They may think it's much more important. They're going right. to call me on it. You know, <laughs> why didn't you use a flush on this one, doctor? Uh, you used hydrogen peroxide, even though it was a dilute peroxide. Doctor so and so and other so and so says that if you do that, that's perfect. Well, oh, yes, they're 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 very much into it, mm-hmm. and. So um, I try to explain what I'm doing. I try to uh, narrate the video as I'm doing the video. Wow. And I think it serves a couple of purposes. One, I think it helps the, uh, the audience to kind of understand my thought process, uh, what's going on in my head as I'm doing the procedure. Mm-hmm. And I seem to have this ability to be able to talk and, and uh, operate at the same time, which is, you know, some people, they, they find that difficult to do. For some reason, it just feels natural for me. I don't know why it just does. But 
it also uh, reassures the patient that what's going on is supposed to be going yeah. on. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they hear what I'm doing, and I try to I try to make it a point that before I make any move or any incision or injection or anything, that I let the patient know in advance what they're going to feel. And uh, we were kind of famous for our little saying, you're going to feel a stick sting and a burn. And <laughs> we actually have had T-shirts that said stick oh, sting yeah. and a burn on them. And, yeah. and I didn't invent that. It's just something <laughs> I learned years ago that, you know, that's what you're going to feel. Head, yeah. and it just stuck in my head, and I started mm -hmm. using it with patients online, and it sort of is stuck to me now. And, <laughs> Um, uh, or to you know, one of my medical assistants used to say it all the time, and her name was Lisa, but her nickname, well, all my uh, staff has nicknames. Everybody gets a nickname. Her nickname was Gonzo. Oh, my and, goodness. Uh, shout out to Gonzo. Shout out to Gonzo, <laughs> right? The Gons. And uh, she used to say, you're going to feel a stick of sting and a burn. And she really, <laughs> she really kind of became her little trademark. That's thing. so funny. So it's really kind of funny. But, yeah, we try to explain what we're doing, and uh, we think it uh, puts the patient at ease when we do mm -hmm. it that way. Well, I just uh, got my lip pierced for a uh, fancy football forfeit, uh, and I'm very paranoid about that getting infected. So if it does, I'll be uh, featured on your, on your YouTube channel. Oh, my gosh. And do you think there's a lot of people who watch your videos are maybe self-teachers? They're watching to maybe buy these products online and try to do it themselves on do you recommend that they don't do not. that? Yeah, I, th I do think there are some people mm -hmm. that, that are unfortunately in situations where they can't access health care. And I'm not just talking about here in the U.S. or in other um, places uh, where um, medicine is sort of westernized and, and much more available. But, um, you know, places um, we don't think about, Indonesia, Asia, Africa, yeah. places where they where they see, and, and I think in some cases they, um, they do kind of uh, mm -hmm. copy and imitate and um, I've had um, many, many emails over the years from individuals that are in medical schools and, and wow. uh, that sort of thing, and they, they've told me that um, our videos have helped them learn how to do certain things and make them feel more confident That's that they amazing. could do things. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, like I said, I think we're really influencing medicine on a, on a much grander scale than we probably know. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's rather gratifying to feel that we're a part of something like that. So. Um, do I think that individuals are probably, yeah, probably so. Uh, and we, we try to put disclaimers up, don't do this at home. And, and you see there are some people that do home procedures and home surgeons. and It's like not yeah. a sterile environment, probably. Well, it's not, not sterile. It's not even clean a lot yeah. of times. <laughs> and it's um, probably not the right products that they're using. I mean, Amazon is selling some stuff or other sure. retail stores. I, I think so. But at the same time, I also know these are people oftentimes that they either don't know how to access the healthcare system or they just mm -hmm. can't access it for whatever reason. I think there's a lot out there that says that people just don't have access to. And I'm not saying that there aren't some people that can't, that simply are unable to access the healthcare mm -hmm. system. But on the flip side, I know that you can walk into almost any emergency room in this country, for example, and you can get care for an acute situation right mm -hmm. there. Um, but I think you're right. I think there are some people that will try uh, procedures on their own because they've seen it and they think they can do it. But I think that's been going on for generations, exactly. too. I, mm -hmm. I think all we're doing is maybe emboldening them a little yeah. bit more. Um, and so we, 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 um, we, we do disclaimers and we do ask people, don't do this at home. And, and this is not this is something your, your doctor should do for you. So uh, go see your go see your family doctor. Don't do mm -hmm. this at home. Yeah. So with. Um, with insurances, you know, cutting reimbursements pretty much year on year, uh, all the doctors that we talk to definitely say it's it's getting harder for independent physicians, especially, to uh, to be financially viable uh, with their clinics. You seem like you're an incredibly entrepreneurial doctor with you know supplement lines, YouTube channels. Uh, do you think it's important that doctors in the the modern age sort of 
grow into more entrepreneurial roles? I think um, I think you'd be very foolish today to be going into medicine as a caregiver, either as a mid-level or as a, uh, a provider, and that's at any level, whether you, you consider yourself a specialist or not. And when I say specialist, I mean limited specialist because that's what they are. They're very limited in their area, and they're dependent wholly on referrals. But if you do not diversify, I think you're, you're setting yourself up for a, maybe a potential disaster in the future because we don't know what's going to happen with health care. It's the always average, changing. The average American thinks that a doctor should earn somewhere around seventy-five dollars to $80,000 a year, and that's about what you make when you run a restaurant. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not a lot of money. Um, so if you save, uh, if you invest wisely, uh, or if you diversify in other ways, um, I think that you can expect to do okay. I think that you know one of the things they told us in medical school was if you're going into medicine to get rich, you're here for the wrong reason, and that's probably not going to happen. And they're right; it's it's you don't get rich in medicine, and that's not the object. Obviously, I mean, we want to be in medicine for the right reasons. We want to be in medicine to to help people to to uh, you know to be healers and to be um, you know uh, members of our community and and. Um, we shouldn't be in it just for the dollar. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with earning a buck. Um, and I, when you work long hours, you should expect to earn more. And when you put, you know, uh, 12, 13 years of your life after high school into an education, um, you should probably make more money than somebody that didn't. Um, so I think that you need to have a little balance. Um, I think a lot of doctors kind of, when they first come out and they first start making an income, they make some mistakes and, um, that's okay. Mm -hmm. But when you get past that, you should, um, probably find a decent money manager and, uh, put away a little bit of money every month, uh, toward your retirement, toward mm -hmm. your older years and make sure that you've got, uh, disability insurance and all of those things that you need to have. And, uh, be wise, and if you if you've got a little extra, uh, and that would be you know in any prof any young professional today could kind of fall into this category too. If you've got a little bit of extra, and you and you want to take a chance on a little riskier investment, mm -hmm. that's okay. You've got time, mm -hmm. but as we get older, we don't want to take those same risks. And so I'm sounding like a financial advisor. <laughs> no, that's great. But those are, but that's the truth. And and um, I'm still from a medical standpoint, I'm still on the. Uh, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm not as young as I used to be, but I've still got a, probably a lot of years to go, depending on uh, my health and things like that, which is which I'm in pretty good shape. If my neck holds out, I've had a couple of big surgeries there, but I seem to be doing fairly well. So as long as that holds out, yeah, I mean, I, I got into real estate back in the 90s. And when I was first working then, and so it's just always been kind of natural for me to, to explore other things to do. And, and uh, when the day's over, I'm, I'm not always finished. Um, I'm a, kind of a high energy person from that standpoint. So I'm always looking for opportunities and interesting things to do and get involved in and uh, things that stimulate my mind and my interests. And, mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, yeah. Lots of That's things. incredible. Yeah. What advice would you have for like providers who are wanting to do the same thing? Because I feel like, how do you get sleep? You're juggling a practice that you own, a YouTube channel, other things, your other business plans. How how do you do it? And what advice could you give? I think that um, you have to have uh, trusted advisors, and and you have to work with other people. You have to learn to to work with other people, and. Uh, be willing to um, share the profit and share the, the workload mm -hmm. because no one person can do it all uh, in any business. And if I didn't have a great medical assistant helping me during the clinic, my clinic would be a disaster, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, in fact, my, my regular medical assistant's coming back on Monday. Gumby Jean will be back. My darling <laughs> wife, the DW, has been covering for her since she said, had back surgery and been out for six weeks or so. So I'm 
Oh, well, she's back, healthy. Jane. Back. I'm so glad to have you back. <laughs> no, unfortunately, I had to let my wife go for mistreating the doctor. No, she <laughs> she, uh, she was glad to, glad to be done. But uh, yeah, obviously, I mean, you have to have other people and other individuals. And I think if you read a lot about uh, successful people out there, you find that they develop brain trusts. Yeah. And uh, these are individuals that are like-minded that also want to uh, succeed or want to. Uh, do interesting things and you meet these people and they become a part of your life and and then you start to share ideas and some of them become business partners yeah. in future endeavors and um you have to learn to take a risk though there's no reward without a risk and um you, you'll fail you will fail on a lot of your ventures but the ones that don't fail will, will make you a, a lot of money so um stick with it um do things that you're passionate about or believe in um things that that fit in with what you're already doing that you understand that that you have an expertise in um could be your area uh, obviously i'm uh, the YouTube videos that we do are an extension from my medical practice, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just it's an easy leapfrog there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and I had to learn some things, and we had to redo. We had to pull down a bunch of videos and add disclaimers, and we mm -hmm. lost 40 million views when we did that because mm -hmm. we had a number of videos up when we first started, and we realized, wait a minute, I didn't put disclaimers on these. Mm -hmm. These need to come down, and yeah. we had to take them all down. Well, we had wow. over 40, our first 40 million views erased mm -hmm. because we pulled the videos down, and then we had to add disclaimers and then re-upload them, and everybody, you know, wait a minute, we already seen these what are you doing you're like well we had to redo them and now they're back up sorry and you know so uh you, you learn you make mistakes along the way and you learn but you have to be persistent and um yeah you do have to be willing to burn the midnight oil sometimes and say uh you know i'm going to work at this because it's something i believe is really going to work for me and uh, it's going to make a difference in my future and whether that's stocks and bonds whether that's a, a business venture of some sort whatever it is if it's but if it's something you're passionate about if something you believe in uh, then you have no reason to believe that you can't be successful. Mm -hmm. So I would say find a brain trust. Get mm -hmm. my, meet like-minded people and, and and talk about things, whether it's investing or, or having your own business, entrepreneurial uh, things. Um, it's a good way to go. Okay, well, thank you so much for featuring. That's about all we've got time yeah. for before we go. Where can people find you? I feel like we've just gotten started. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's it's... to continue. Well, I mean, if you want, if, 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 you know, I'm, I'm available. I'm on YouTube. Uh, my YouTube yeah. channel is John Gilmore MD. So if you just go to youtube.com slash John Gilmore MD, you'll find my YouTube channel. We have a, a fan club channel. We also have an all star doctors channel that we run. Wow. Uh, and I say we with some partners. Um, and I have a smaller channel I call it the Vignettes channel, which is where we talk about about uh, nutrition and um, uh, intermittent fasting and things like that that we do. So uh, we're on YouTube, and um, of course my clinic is in Cyprus at uh, 1916 Fallbrook at uh, Cypress Lakewood Clinic. Um, so I'm easy to find. Uh, usually my, my uh, information is on the internet. If somebody wanted to get in touch with me for any reason, I in fact, I've, I'm usually pretty open with my email um, with, with people who may have questions or issues. And uh, while I don't ever provide uh, direct medical advice, uh, I often can help point people in the right direction. So uh, I do get interesting emails uh, from people with chronic problems or concerning problems, and they're who knows where. Right? Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, and, and they'll send me pictures, and I'll tell them, you know, okay, this, if I were your doctor, this is what I would do. That's the game I play, yeah. right? This is, this is how I would go. This is the direction I would go in. So uh, we, we try to help people whenever possible. So we're easy to find. Okay. Yeah. And your supplement line is called Meta7? Yep. You can go to meta-7.com. It's M-E-T-A-S-E-V. 
S-A-V-E-N.com. Right? Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on. Thank really you. appreciate your time. And I think that was a fantastic podcast. Incredible. And I can't wait to watch some more videos. And hopefully the viewers and listeners here would actually join in. Wonderful. And if you'll give me the link to this podcast. You I'm will. not big into the podcast world. Maybe you can teach me something about that. Um, I'll see if I can get you some exposure to it. Okay. Well, thank you. And that's uh, it from us at Lab yeah. Lowdown. Uh, I'm Fergus. Hey, it's Ashley. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. All right. Dr. Gilmore signing off.